Well, remain standing, please, and take your Bibles out. Open them, if you would, to Mark's Gospel and to chapter 13. We will be reading this morning verses 1 through 13 this morning. Verses 1 through 13. And as I read here, follow along, and as you follow along, remember that this is God's inspired, God-breathed word to us today. So let's give good attention to it, Uh, young as well as old in our congregation. Let's all pay attention as God's word is read. Beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. As we get ready to look into this passage this morning, let us seek God's grace and his assistance as we do so. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we do seek your assistance this morning. We know that in our own selves, in our own minds, we are likely to, to go astray. Uh, so we thank you that you have given to us your spirit and that he is our teacher. And we pray, Father, that he would be the one that would use the preaching of the word to instruct us today. We pray that you would, um, through this passage, Lord, direct us to that which is needful, that which is important. we, We pray that you would bless the preaching of the word, bless the hearing of the word. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. You may all be seated. Keep your Bibles out to follow along with us. You know, with all the dramatic, terrible events 
going on in the Middle East, the, the war between the nation of Israel and the Hamas terrorists, coupled with the, the resulting and escalating unrest in, well, in, in that region and really in many areas of the world. Uh, we have seen also the resurgence of books and now commercials advertising those books um, asking, as one prominent ad on television does, is this the end? By the way, if you want to find out what they think, they will happily sell you a book to explain what they think about that. Fortunately, we already have a book. Uh, we have a book to tell us everything that is needful, everything that we need to know about discerning the end, when the end is, uh, the end of the world, the end of this age. Uh, fortunately, we already have that book. Unfortunately, the ultimate author of that book, God himself, tells us the answer to the question, is this the end, is we don't know. We won't know. We can't know. But that question that is on the minds of many, uh, especially in times like today, that seems to be on the mind of Jesus' disciples as Jesus leads them out of the temple after having, through parable and through miracle, uh, pronounced a thinly veiled message about the destruction of the temple there in Jerusalem, and along with it, the whole temple system of religion among God's people. And as we see here at the beginning, as, as upon leaving the temple, as one of the disciples calls Jesus' attention to these uh, wonderful stones and, and wonderful buildings of the temple complex there uh, in the capital city. Jesus has made that thinly veiled message, uh, the, the prophecy regarding the future of the temple. He has made that prophecy now absolutely and graphically plain. As he said there in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. A statement that we as 21st century Gentile men and women, we can't really begin to fathom how that statement would, would strike them. The temple and the tabernacle before it was and had been for thousands of years the very center of Jewish religious life. And as it existed, as Jesus spoke these words to the disciples, it was the temple of God was one of the most imposing and one of the most seemingly secure structures in existence. Herod the Great, remember we talked a little bit about this, Herod the Great had undertaken an incredible building project. He under 
took many building projects, uh, but none like this. He basically, in expanding the, the temple and the temple area, he basically built up the whole southwest side of the mountain on which the temple sat and built a retaining wall around it of, of enormous size and strength and then filled that up and then expanded the temple on the top of it using some 18,000 skilled workers. The stones that were used in the construction of the, the retaining wall around the, the bottom of the structure were mind-bogglingly huge. One stone, one single stone that, that you can still see called the Western Stone, still exists there, is 44 and a half feet long 11 feet high, and somewhere between 6 to 8 feet deep. A single stone. It is calculated to weigh in the neighborhood of 330 tons. It is recognized as one of the largest single building blocks in the world. Even the stones that were used in the the temple structure itself, many of which are still visible, By the way, they are in a pile at the bottom of the wall. They themselves weigh between two and five tons each. Just an an incredible structure. All of that sort of is to help, help us to sense the shock experienced by the disciples when this beautiful structure, some 35 acres of a structure, Jesus said there will not be left one stone on another. And the only thing more amazing than that prediction is the fact that it literally came true. But as they left the temple that day, it seemed incredible to think, to ponder that it could even happen. And not just because of the size of of this imposing structure, but because of what it would mean to them if the temple were destroyed. To Jesus' disciples, as he said that, and probably to any Jew of the day that you would ask, the end of the temple would certainly be literally to them nothing less than the beginning of the end of the age, the end of the world. And that seems to be on the minds of the disciples. Because as they leave the temple, after Jesus has made this pronouncement, as they go across the Kidron Valley and up onto the Mount of Olives, where they stop for some time, the disciples, four of them at least, named here, ask him about this statement. And then it's in verse 5 of chapter 13 that Jesus now, and we looked at that, those earlier verses last week, but in verse 5, Jesus begins to answer And that is where we want to look today in the first part of this teaching, this discourse of Jesus, because the answer that Jesus gives, as we talked about last week, takes up all of chapter 13. We've said is one of the most difficult passages to deal with in all of the New Testament, at least, certainly. There's one Bible teacher who calls this passage Jesus' premier message on his return. And then he gives five signposts that we are to watch for as one would seek to 
uh, to read the tea leaves of the signs leading up to the return of Christ. And, and you know that people do this. You've perhaps read the books. You've perhaps seen the movies. You, you hear this. You see this. But as we looked at last week, it is not so easy to determine if that's what Jesus is doing here or, or where within this chapter Jesus is doing that and where he is making reference to the statement that he made to the disciples. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is coming back. He is coming back physically. He is coming back on the clouds. He is coming back as the angel in Acts chapter 1 said, in the same way you've seen him go into heaven, he is coming back the same way. He is coming back for very specific purposes. He's coming back to judge the world He's coming back to condemn evildoers, to fully and finally deal with evil. He is coming back to receive his people to himself. He's coming back to to vindicate himself and to vindicate the faith of those who have placed their hope in him. He is coming back to make all things new, to usher in the eternal state The New Testament is clear, abundantly clear, on all of that. But is that what Jesus is talking about here? That's what we have to look at in uh, this short series on this entire chapter, and even today, in this whole thing that we call the Olivet Discourse, because he gave it on the Mount of Olives. Because the statement that Jesus made outside of the temple that prompted all of this was simply about the destruction of the temple, right? Jesus said, there will not be one stone left on top of another that will not be thrown down. That's what Jesus said. It was the disciples then who sort of made the connection between that and the end of time and the the returning of Christ. Now, were they right about that? Were they wrong about making those connections? Well, we're going to see as we go through this chapter. But in this morning's text, we come across what is a very interesting dilemma for us here, well, it was for them too, but for us in the 21st century today. A very interesting dilemma. Many see in these words, all of the words of chapter 13, Um, signposts to the second coming. Things that, when observed, tell us that the end is near, very near. But Jesus' teaching here today seems to, appears to be, just the opposite. Let's look at it. Because Jesus' focus here, especially in in this passage that we're in today, the beginning of what he tells to his disciples, his focus is not on reading the signs, determining the signs, but it's on a series of warnings and a series of exhortations that he gives to his disciples. Being on guard, being alert, being prepared, and not being taken in by two things, false Christs and false signs. Isn't that interesting? I think so. Specifically, 
his warnings, his exhortations are don't be fooled by false teachers. Don't be undone by upheavals. Don't be panicked by persecution. Don't be stressed by a summons. In verses 5 and 6, he tells them to not be fooled by false teachers. Look there, this is the beginning of his answer. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So do you, do you notice something here? Their question about when will these things be and, and what will be the sign of, of these things to come, Jesus starts by saying, don't be led astray. Let's start there. The first thing that Jesus says in answer to their question about times and signs is a warning against those who would come to give them information about signs and warnings. And even more so, to do so in the name of Christ. Come claiming, he says, to be me. Claiming either to be Jesus or claiming to have his authority, claiming to act on that authority, a claim to represent him, to have taken up his mantle, his authority, and to make pronouncements in that way. Many, he says, will come in my name. Now, obviously, if they're going to come and claim to be Jesus, then this must make, um, this must refer to the time after Jesus returns to heaven. He's at least talking about after the ascension. But that's not that far off. We know that. The disciples don't know that. This is something that he is saying to the disciples about the days in which they would be living after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And that's very near. Remember, we are three days from the crucifixion here. And then Jesus will rise on the third day following his crucifixion. And then the ascension is 40 days after that. And then it will be only another 37 years until the Roman army surrounds Jerusalem and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, not leaving one stone on another. Were there already, during that time, many who would come and claim to be messianic figures? Those who would claim to be Jesus, or more likely those who would be taking up his mantle, his role and authority as a prophet of God par excellence. Well, yes, actually, there are. In the book of Acts, Acts 8 tells us about Simon Magus, who said that he himself was somebody great, and the people said, this man is the power of God that is called great. Uh, Peter and James and John, or Peter and Paul and John, all speak of false prophets arising during New Testament times who would, by the way, lead many astray, just as Jesus has said here. And there were others, especially ones who came and, and adopted as, as they came as a Messiah, 
adopted the, the more traditional Jewish, Jewish expectation for the Messiah that we've talked about and fomented rebellion among the people. There was one Thutis, a magician who persuaded a great many of the people that he was a great prophet and that he would part the waters of the Jordan. There was another one known simply as the Egyptian who convinced many that he was the prophet of God. The Jewish historian Josephus records many others whom he called impostors and deceivers who did the same kinds of things and gathered uh, sometimes many followers, hundreds of, of, of followers, Simon and Thranges, and one who was known as a certain Samaritan. And these all came and went before the beginning of the Roman War in 66 A.D. But that wasn't the end of those who would come and claim to be the Messiah, claim to be Christ, claim to be uh, speaking on the authority of Christ. They just kept right on coming. They're still coming today. A long list of supposed messiahs who have come. Just a couple of examples. A lady named An Lee who was associated with the the Shakers, she thought she embodied all the perfections of God. Sun Myung Moon, who was the the founder of the Unification Church, he was called the second coming of Christ, anointed to fulfill Jesus' unfinished missions. Then hundreds, and they all have this in common. They lead people astray. They have led people astray. And though Jesus doesn't say say it explicitly here, when we look at the context of of how he says and when he says, be careful that no one leads you astray in the context of this question that the disciples have asked, at the beginning of this long answer to their question, we can see that the particular way that they are leading many astray is by pointing to the end of things. And we know that many of the false teachers that come do that. In fact, we hear that today, predicting the end of time. Is there a single topic that is more rich in the potential for deception? How many times have we heard teachers predict the end of the world? And when it doesn't happen, when they say it's supposed to happen, when they set a date and that date goes by and nothing happens, that their followers seem happy enough to just say, well, there's probably some more information. Or the teacher himself says, oh, I forgot to carry the two or whatever. Uh, And they come up with a new one, and their people just keep following them. Jesus is saying here, beware of men and women who would engage in that speculation and lead people astray in that way particularly. And this is really a warning that continues through the life of the church. And we always have to be on our guard to beware that we are not led astray by such teachers, such people. Don't be fooled by false teachers who come in the name of Christ with the authority of Christ or the apostles and claim to know what Jesus even said he doesn't know. He said, of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the Son of Man. 
But there are these people who come and say, well, I do. And if you follow me, send in your offerings. I I will share that with you. So this was a warning for us today as surely as it was for those in the first century. And that's where Jesus starts his answer about the, the end, about the signs of the end is by saying, don't be led astray by people who come in my name, who are not me, and lead people astray. Don't be led astray. That's the first thing. The second thing is he says, don't be undone by upheavals. Now, I told you last week that you were probably going to hear some things as we go through chapter 13 um, that, that were going to surprise you and that maybe you've never heard before, and I said then and I say now that that's not because these are some new thing, some new revelation that I have uh, noticed that nobody else seems to have. Um, This is not because these things are going to be novel or new, but because our Christian culture here, especially in the United States today, has so embraced one particular view of these things that we rarely take the time to actually read what the Bible says. And when you read and and look at these guys who say that here are the signs and here's how we know by the things that are going on that we are at the very end of time, we hear that, we, we, we see that, they very often almost always point to this passage as proof that these things are the signs of the end. Or the the parallel passage in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21. So here, though, is one of those places that may come as a shock to you to see what Jesus actually says. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus gives his disciples and us uh, instructions regarding two kinds of signs that he mentions here, political upheaval and natural upheaval. Political upheaval first. In verse 7, he says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. One of the most common trumpeted Signs of the last days that we hear are wars and rumors of wars. And especially, like we have right now, when any of those wars involve Israel. You've heard it. With the the Middle East, especially, and Israel, but also with Ukraine and and the threats represented by Russia and China and North Korea and Iran and, and so forth. Oh, they say this is proof that we are in the very last of the last days. Well, what saith the Lord is what we should ask. And so we do. What saith the Lord? Well, the Lord saith, in verse 7, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Let me read that again. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, 
But the end is not yet. This is one of those things that these false teachers will say. Very alarming things. And yes, it is very alarming to hear of the the rising tension and the violence uh, of breaking out around the world. But Jesus says in regard to such things as the harbingers of the end, he says, don't be alarmed. Don't let yourself get all bent out of shape about this. These things, wars and rumors of wars, they're part of the way of a fallen world. They are nothing new. In the beginning of verse 8, Jesus says, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This has always been going on. Have you ever read world history? And it will continue to go on until the very end. So political upheaval is not a sign of the impending end of the age. It's the way of a fallen world. And not just political upheaval, but natural upheaval as well. Physical, actually, upheaval. Tectonic upheaval. Earthquakes will take place. Verse 8 says that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. And there will be famines. This is another thing that we sort of look at on a, on a micro level whenever they happen to crop up. Whenever there's a wave of earthquakes or uh, some other natural phenomenon, people's apocalyptic alarms start going off. And they go, oh, we're in, this is it. This is the end. Several earthquakes were recorded during the first century. So when we're looking at what is Jesus referring to, he could have been referring to that very local time. Jesus also mentions famines, which also have been, what, a part of the human condition since the fall. A famine drove Abraham to Egypt. Another famine drove Isaac to Gerar. The later parts of the story of Joseph revolve around a terrible famine. We saw not too long ago that Ruth ended up in Moab. Why? Because of a famine. In all, there are something like 16 famines recorded in the Bible. A major famine occurred after Jesus' death in the, during the life of the apostles in A.D. 46. It was predicted by Agabus in Acts chapter 11. There have been famines always, and they have continued. But they, the earthquakes, the wars, the rumors of wars, are all, as Jesus says here at the, at the end of verse 8, he says, these are but the beginning of birth pains. A common metaphor in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, for for great suffering. In a variety of of wide contexts, Isaiah 13.8, Isaiah 21.3, Jeremiah 35-7, Hosea 13.13, Jeremiah 22.23, Micah 4.9-10, it's just all over these references to uh, a woman in travail, a woman giving birth, 
uh, these types of things as being a way to refer to great calamity. These are pointers toward the end of all things, but they're not things that we can look at and say, well, there's been a, a five-fold increase in famines in the last hundred years, so we must be right on the, the verge of Jesus returning. In contrast to those who say incessantly, watch for these things. Open the paper and look for these signs of the end. Work out how this current war in Israel is a sure sign that Jesus will return shortly. In contrast to that, Jesus says that such things must take place. And they have been as far back as the beginning. And they will continue. And Jesus says, do not be alarmed at them. You, your, to his disciples, our, to the church, focus should be elsewhere. Somewhere else rather than than reading tea leaves as to when Jesus will return. And he turns next to where their attention, where our attention should be in verse 9. He says, but be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. He says, don't be panicked by persecution. It's the third thing we're going to look at. Don't be panicked about it. But Jesus says, be on your guard. Again, here's this exhortation. Here's what you should focus on. Be alert. Uh, Be ready. Be be watching for this, for persecution. Be ready for it. And why? Is increased persecution a sign of the imminent return of Christ? No. What we have here is a general statement by Jesus to, to refocus the minds of his disciples away from their, their concern with the, the times and the seasons. Remember, that they'll eventually get this, but not quite yet. Remember that when Jesus is getting ready to ascend back into heaven, what do they say? What is their, their big question for Jesus as he's getting ready to go away? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, their, their minds are, are focused on that, and Jesus is saying, I need to refocus your mind away from all of that and onto the important topic at hand. That their lives are going to be and get very difficult after Jesus ascended into heaven. They will be, as Jesus says, delivered over to councils, beaten in synagogues. And all you have to do is read the book of Acts to see all of that coming to pass. But in and through that persecution, Jesus promises them, he says that they will also stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Witness of what? Witness of who? What did Jesus say to his disciples? What will he say to them at the same time that they've asked him about, is the kingdom, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, no, but you will be, what? My witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The persecution of the apostles, and now more generally through the church, is overruled by God and used by God for good. 
and even one who was not there at this time, the Apostle Paul, will especially be called by God from Acts 9.15 to carry Christ's name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. This is all part of God's ongoing sovereign plan of spreading the gospel. And even their persecution, the things they need to be on guard about, that's what is going to come through that. And that's why verse 10 is there. Because Jesus says, here's the focus that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. To share the good news of the gospel of the kingdom to those before whom they will stand. Even when it may cost them dearly, even cost them their lives. You've heard that saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Jesus says here, let this proclamation, let that be your focus. Not looking here or there for signs of the end, but being concerned with seeing the gospel proclaimed to all nations. To, to see the blind see, to see the deaf hear, to see the lost found through the gospel. In fact, that focus will be Jesus' final command to these same disciples before Jesus returns to his Father. Not to look for signs of his return, but to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, with the assurance, Jesus said, that that he would be with them until the end of the age. Now, this is especially being spoken to to Jesus' disciples, but we can certainly make application of it to ourselves today. As current-day disciples, it goes for us as well. We are not to be sign watchers. but We are to be ready for the persecution that is part of being a Christian and to see and to use and to pray that that persecution would be used as a means of spreading the gospel. And this persecution too, Jesus says, is nothing out of the ordinary, but what they were to expect. And they were to expect it to be very harsh at times, in very harsh ways. If you drop down to verse 12, Jesus picks this up again and says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And that too, he says, is part of the ongoing situation of a world, of a fallen world, of a world, Jesus said, that hated me in John 15, so know that they will hate you as well. And that hatred of Christ and therefore of Christ's people will at times even, even to be even to the point of ripping apart families and setting families against one another. Remember, Jesus in Matthew 20, 34 said, I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Not because Jesus and the gospel has as its purpose to destroy families, obviously, but because the loyalty that the gospel demands is absolute. And because no one can serve two masters. 
And the forcing of a choice between serving Christ and appeasing family is something that he talks about there, but it's something that is a common experience. Many of you sitting here today have experienced that. Family that has disowned you because of your faith in Christ. And our Lord more so. He came to his own, to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. And Jesus warns here that such betrayal and persecution, to the extent that he's talking about here, may even come from one's whole family, own family, and even be a betrayal unto death. He says it twice in verse 12. Brother betraying brother, children betraying parents. A situation which was also seen in the first century and continues even till today. And that general statement then is applied really to the disciples specifically in verse 13 because he says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Be ready for it. But in the midst of these grave predictions, which came true before 70 AD and have come true ever since, Jesus gives them here two great and precious promises. One regarding how they are to respond and one regarding the result of their perseverance. And that's our last point. Don't be stressed by a summons. Jesus assures them. He gives a command in verse 11. Not to be anxious beforehand what you are to say. When you're dragged before the governors and the kings and the Gentiles and the Jews, don't be anxious what you will say, but rest in the promise that God's Spirit will be with you and work in you to give you, to give them the words to speak. So much so that it is the case, Jesus says, that it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit there at the end of verse 11. Now, of course, it would be the disciples who speak, but their thoughts and their mouths would be so superintended by the Spirit that it would be the Spirit speaking through them, such that they need not stress about what they would say when they're put in that situation. Very similar to how, when the disciples wrote Scripture, that that though they, they wrote what they had determined and what they had researched and what they had intended to write in their own particular way, that it was through the Spirit moving them that they wrote, Peter says, the very words of God. And then also, at the end of verse 13, comes this great and precious promise that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the sense of that statement is Obviously not talking about saved physically, the word can mean that, but he has just told them that they're going to, in some cases, be turned over to death. And we know that that happened to the apostles. But the sense of this statement is similar to what Jesus said back in Mark 8.35. He said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Here, a a reminder that those who remain steadfast in the face of persecution for the sake of the kingdom of God, they will indeed enter that kingdom and that glory through the grace of God. And so, beloved, we see here 
in this first chunk of this discourse, very little controversy as far as, is this 70 AD? Is this, is this Jesus' second coming? What Jesus is telling us here is that our concern is not to be in looking for the signs. No matter, well, for one reason, no matter how much work we put into that, we will invariably be wrong. Jesus' coming will ultimately be like a thief in the night when people are not expecting it. But also, we will, to the degree that we focus on that, be distracted from the things that we are to be focused on. Living for the kingdom while we're here. Being ready for persecution while we're here. However long that may be. So Jesus begins his great discourse here with not a call to watchfulness of the signs, but a call to watchfulness of ourselves. A call to watchfulness, a call to faithfulness, a call to endurance in the midst of a fallen world which, surprise, surprise, looks like, acts like, behaves like a fallen world. Let us seek to focus on the things that are needful, the things that are important. Obedience to God, obedience to Christ, love for God and neighbor. Let those types of things be our focus. God will take care of the rest. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank you for the, the, the glorious truth that your son is returning first of all lord let us never allow that to be diminished lord let that be what your word says it is our great hope the return of our lord but father since we will not know the time let us not look for signs that we cannot rightly understand or or determine But let us focus, as your word says, upon the things that you have given to us to focus. Let us not be fooled by false teachers. Let us not be thrown into a a bad situation in our mind by the upheavals that go on, the wars and rumors of wars. Lord, we pray for peace, Father, but we recognize that in in a fallen world that men do not seek peace. Help us to seek peace. Uh, that we would not be panicked by persecution, but would be ready for it and would seek to, when it comes, Lord, see it used by you for the, the spread of the gospel. And let us not be stressed by, by what we will say in any situations, just as you told your disciples not to be stressed about what they would say. As we hide your word in our heart, O oh Lord, uh, we will know what to say. We pray, Father, that you would help us to look to Christ always, to rejoice in him and what he has done, even as we do say, as your word tells us, Lord, come quickly. We ask this all in his name. Amen.